do is we're going to have a word of prayer, and uh, then I'm going to give you probably the longest introduction and not even going to give you the title of the message for a long time. That's just how I want to do it. Again, if that's slightly inductive, I'm giving you a bunch of details, and then bam, we get to the ending, great. That's, that's a preacher's prerogative to maybe lay things out that way. Okay, not everything has to be point A, B, C, you know, type of thing. Again, I understand we like to hear things that way, but I just want to just, if I can, just let the Lord say what he wants to say through me, okay? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to pray for protection. Any church, any preacher, teacher, any family, any member, any visitor, Lord, that wants to do your will is going to receive flack. The old word that we learned, it's a much longer German word, but Lord, we understand it came from World War II when the bombers would be flying over their intended targets. It could be a city, it could be Berlin, maybe it was Tokyo, and the big Tokyo raid. I mean, it could be a number of things, but I know this, Lord, I've seen it myself, and I've seen it in other people's lives. When the bomber was right over the target, that is when he received the most flack. I believe this church wants to go forward for you. You have wonderful people, from visitors to members to leadership. You are putting together an inner city Baptist church, and that is no small feat, and it cannot be done, Lord, unless you do it. We're thankful. So we're asking for spiritual protection this morning. I'm asking for the freedom to preach as I ought to preach, with the boldness and with the desire, Lord, with the openness and with open hearts and minds to hear. Lord, also give the listeners spiritual ears to hear. Otherwise, Lord, it'll be like the seed that falls on hardened ground. It will not sprout. It will not produce fruit. And while it is pleasant to listen to polished preachers, may we respond to your invitation to satisfy our spiritual thirst And as it says in Revelation, the spirit and the bride, that is the church, the spirit and the bride say, come. So Lord, please invite them that are thirsty. Invite them that have never been saved and need to receive Christ. They need to receive that free gift of eternal life. Help them to do that. And Lord, those that are already saved, help them no matter what condition they're in, how much hurt is going on physically, mentally, emotionally. Help them, Lord, to be thirsty for you, Lord. As the deer panteth after the water, so my soul panteth after thee. Help us to have that as a testimony. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen. Before I give you the title or text, I want to talk with you about the disciple who penned the verses we're going to be talking about. And I'm confessing, I'm not getting to that later, until later. But the disciple that penned, and remember, the Bible was written by men. Now, we don't just stop there. We understand God superintended. He somehow miraculously watched over these men so that even though they used their own minds, their imaginations, their memories, their own personalities, their own things that they've gone through, experiences, yet at the same time, we have a wonderful living book because our God is living. And because of that, this this man that I'm going to talk about in just a moment was led of God to write actually multiple books in the Bible, not just one. He wrote actually a few of the books. A wonderful disciple, a wonderful apostle. But remember, God superintended. It's exactly what God wanted. Yet at the same time, remember, look who God uses. And by the way, there's nobody in here that he doesn't want to use. Every single one of you that names the name of Christ, that is God's desire to use you in a magnificent way. Now, 
Don't let the world determine what magnificent is. Let God and His Word determine what magnificent is. Okay? If all you can do, and that's just from a human perspective, is lay in the bed because you are paralyzed or you can't work, you can't do a number of things. If you love God and you are staying close to God, then you can pray really like many others probably can. That's your job. That is a wonderful thing, and that is magnificent in God's eyes. We heard the preacher say on Thursday, I think the reason why a lot of our work doesn't go forward and a lot of things don't happen and there's not power in the pulpit many times is because we're not praying for the preachers, we're not praying for the church, we're not praying for each other. A pastor friend said to me one time, and I have participated in this, so I'm going to say it. Pastor friend said, you know, most of our churches today are consumer churches. You know what I mean by that? What's a consumer? Right? We had a young girl just go to Target a few days ago, Annie. See your beautiful dress? Nothing wrong with that. She bought a beautiful dress she's wearing. Okay, right back there. Okay. Um, but what happens is we now have a consumer church. In other words, the whole mindset has gone from when I look at the New Testament and I look at all the various things that God would have us to do, the first step is getting saved. And then the Bible says, they that gladly received the word, that means they embraced it, they then were baptized, and then they were added unto the church. I believe church membership's important. I, I believe it's a step of faith. I believe it shows accountability. I'm willing to be accountable to a church body. That's just the beginning. I see in the New Testament all these various things that God would have us to do, pray, all these good works, giving, reaching people for Christ, all these things. But today what we have is we have a consumer church. I've had the same attitude hey, I'm looking for a church where I can come and sit and I can just hear messages. I can just keep receiving and receiving and receiving. Folks, that was never in the mind of God. Do you know whose mind that is in? Hollywood, television, radio, just sit and consume and sit and keep taking it in. God's way is, if you are in any way able-bodied or able-minded, get engaged it's exciting. Get involved. Are you going to be attacked? Yes. What I was saying before was the largest target that the devil likes is a pastor and his family, a missionary. Again, all of us that are Christians, but for sure that target is the largest, I believe, on any Christian that actually wants to go forward for God. You're going to get shot at. You're going to receive the most flack, as I said about the World War II pilots. And you know what flack is? That's where they had these artillery, uh, anti-aircraft, I think I'm saying it right, artil artillery guns. They would shoot these shells up in the air, and they would try to hit the airplanes. But not only were they just trying to shove like a bullet into the airplane, these, um, I'll call them little bombs or anti-aircraft uh, uh, shells, would actually explode pieces of metal. And these pieces of metal, they were trying to tear apart the, tear apart, uh, apart the plane. And sadly, in these long bombers where you had, like, uh, my dad was in uh, the B-17s, that thing, I think they had like 10 people in that whole fuselage. And as that flak would explode, not only would it tear the plane apart, those pieces of shrapnel would tear into the plane and actually hit the men. That's why they had flak jackets on. They had various things they wore. Could you have your flak jacket on? <laughs> Maybe you don't need one because maybe you're not getting any. You know what I'm saying? When I'm serving Larry Schmidt and just doing what I want to do and feeling good, you know, and just, you know, focused on myself, I'll be honest with you, the devil doesn't bother me at all. 
But when we venture out by faith and say, God, I don't need to compare myself to anybody. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm not Jim. I'm not Bob. I'm not the other Larry. I'm not, you know, Nathan. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not any. I, I don't need to compare myself to any of them, but it's just, Lord, what do you want me to do? When you start doing that, get your flak jacket on. <laughs> Go to Ephesians 6 and put on the whole armor of God, and that will stop the shrapnel. Will it be easy? No, but I guarantee the one thing a coward has never experienced was the joy of victory. And I know we have this in all of us. We are all cowards without the Lord. Believe me, I'm the biggest one. I fought God tooth and nail to stay out of this. Okay? But when we step in faith to do what God wants us to do, believe me, the joy, the victory. By the way, I don't think God reveals. He does give us little snippets, but I don't think God reveals the full impact you have had on somebody else's life when you're living by faith and doing what God asks you to do. I think, God, one of the beauties of heaven is when you get up to heaven, God is going to pull back the curtains and you're going to see in a greater way than you ever did the effect that your faith had on somebody or multiple people. That's going to be one of the joys of heaven. You can at least turn to his book that we're going to talk about that we're focusing on this morning, 1 John. I guess that's a hint, isn't it? We're going to talk about John. But we're going to talk about in a little while what John said to us as a church, what John says, what the Holy Spirit said through John to us as Christians. And while you're turning there, I'm going to look at another scripture. Now, if you want to turn there, that's fine too. But I'd be happy if you were just in 1 John. I want to give you a little bit of insight into this particular disciple. He was a very interesting character. Some of us men, some not, can relate to this guy, okay, how he was acting here. I want to give you a little snippet of his background. And of course, the story doesn't end there. Like most of our stories, we start out pretty rough, right? And then by the grace of God, if we're following God and doing what he asks, we are going to turn to be more like Christ and be a different type of person. That's what happened to this disciple. Let me show you very quickly. The context here is a Samaritan village refuses to receive Jesus. But I want to show you the character I'm talking about here, okay? I'm going to read very quickly. If you want to stay in 1 John, that's fine. I'm reading from Luke 9.51. It says, And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, that's Jesus, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. I won't stay here long. We're going to read a few more verses. But understand, you know about the Samaritans. Sadly, they were called half-breeds. You know when there was division of the kingdom? You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You had Israel and Judah. You had, in a sense, impure Israelites. They weren't the full Israelite. Okay, They had intermarried with the Gentiles. Now you have these Samaritans. And the Samaritans did not like those in, in Jerusalem, okay, the Jews, and they didn't like, okay, there was some really bad blood there. There was some real, as we would call today, uh, racism or some real problems going on. They looked at that other person and said, hey, you're not exactly like me. Guess what? You're inferior. You married a Gentile, which, by the way, was never God's intention. The Israelites were to be a, a pure people, pure in the sense of he didn't want them marrying and learning the other gods of the Gentiles. But hey, you know what? Every human being is equal, right? Every human being. 
And sadly, that's human nature. Oh, you, you have a little bit of tainted in you because what we would call, you're a mutt. You know, like dogs, when they, all the different dogs get together, all the different types of dogs, you're not a purebred. See, that's how they looked at it, interestingly. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem because I know it's the will of my Father, but you know what? We're still traveling through, and the shortest route is to still stop in Samaria. And basically what these verses are saying are, you know what? We know, we can tell by even the look on your face that you're not one of us. And I can tell that you, like your face is like a flint. You are so set on what you're going to do that we can tell, you know, we don't have really room for you here. We don't want you here. You're not one of us. You, you, I can tell. There's some, and I don't even think they recognized that that was the Son of God. They just saw that these were Jews. And they said, oh, every Jew that comes here, then they don't like us. In fact, they would actually go around Samaria, which made it a lot longer and farther to get where they were going. Look at how our wonderful apostle and John, which interestingly says this, and when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord... Wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did? <laughs> Do you ever feel that way? We all have. Right? This has got me so upset. And we may not have used the exact words, but Lord, if you could bring fire down. I might, see, what they were doing is they were listening to their own spirit. Okay, now real quick, who is this? James and John, they were brothers. And what did God call them? He said, he said in another verse, he, you know, and we'll get to, and that's Mark 3.17. We'll get there in just a moment, so I, I won't run ahead. But these three guys, James, John, and Peter, were in the inner circle of the Lord. They were the closest disciples, then, of course, apostles, that our Lord Jesus Christ had. Now, time out. Did Jesus ever show favoritism? No. no. No, Jesus' love is unconditional. Jesus' love is a perfect love, and it is for everyone that has been born or will be born or is born right now. God's love is the same. It is unconditional. Hates the sin, but he loves us. He loves the person. He wants to restore us back to that relationship. God was not showing favoritism. Was there something about John and James and Peter? You know, the three that went on the mount? Those were the three that got to actually see Jesus transfigured. Do you remember that? Was there something better about them? No, not really. In fact, they were pretty rough guys. Peter always stuck his foot in his mouth. Peter got in trouble. I mean, there's a lot, lot of things, right? We all do that. They were the ones that determined how close they were going to be to Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus didn't say, you know what, I like your hair color, John. Hey, I like you, uh, Peter, okay, and um, James, you know, I kind of like the smell of your cologne. I'm going to have you guys hang around with me. We're just going to hang out and be this good crew. No, he doesn't show favoritism like that. The reason why these three particular men were the closest to Jesus is because they desired it, because they wanted it, because they put themselves in a place where they could be close to God. Remember in James what it says? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Why does God say that? Because previously he said, draw nigh to God and God will draw nigh to you. Listen, you will get as much of God as you want this morning. As much as you desire, you will have God. You can be like John. You can be like them and be super close in that inner circle. They wanted to bring fire. <laughs> we're, just, we're still just building the picture of our beloved John. Okay? 
They wanted to bring fire down. Why? Because even though they were technically right, it was wrong for them to say, no, no, we don't have any room for Jesus. We don't have any room for you guys. Move along. Don't stay here. Keep moving. That was wrong. And by the way, God will deal with that. Let God deal with those things. Sometimes we feel like we need to deal with things on our own. You know what? If you've been done wrong, there are times God may prompt you, you need to say something. Answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be wise in their own conceit. I mean, there is a time to do that. But there are other times you need to just let something go. And Jesus was saying a couple things here. He looks at them and he rebukes them. And he says, you know what, guys? He says this to uh, James and John, both. You don't know what spirit you're of. What did those guys do wrong? Technically, they were right. Hey, this is the Son of God. You don't tell Jesus there's no room in the inn, right? You don't tell Jesus we don't have a spot for you at this hotel or motel. That's unbelievably disrespectful. And you can tell me they didn't know who he was. That's fine. But it was still wrong. God will deal with that. So technically, my wife and I call this the justice center, the inside of our being that discerns, hey, that's good, that's bad, that pleases God, that doesn't please bad. Hey, there's some justice that's not being done here. Man, and we can't listen to the news one day without us feeling like that every day. There's something wrong here. Good for you. Technically, you're right. But here's what God says. Even if you are right technically, but in your spirit, your attitude's wrong, then you're still wrong. God not only looks at the information you're currently carrying in your mind, he also looks at the spirit and attitude and motive behind that discernment. So were they technically right? Yes. It was wrong for them. It was wrong for the Samaritans to say, we, don't, we, don't, we can tell that you're going to Jerusalem, your face, you're looking, it's just totally like a flint. It's, it's firm, it's hard, it's straight. You have resolve in your face. You're not even going to stay with us long. Guess what? Then I don't have a place for you. But Jesus, who's being God, saw right into the deepest part, okay, of man's nature. And you know what he called these two men? Sons of thunder. Yeah. I won't even say the other name he said is probably Aramaic or Hebrew. My wife always laughs at me when I try to pronounce it, so I'm not going to say it. It's a weird name, Boanerges or something. Okay. Yeah, but sons of thunder, there's a reason he did that. I believe God, who can see right into the deepest parts of our nature, knew John and knew James and said, you know what, these guys are probably not very delicate, right? You've always heard the phrase, a bull in a china shop, okay? You understand that? Where, and God uses all different types of people. He uses the most meekest and calmest people. But then other times he uses a guy that just isn't really good in a china shop. Wherever he moves, he breaks and knocks over something and smashes it. I believe James and John here, they were called the sons of thunder, partly also because of their spirit. And God rebuked them because they didn't have a right spirit. Basically, Jesus said to them, you don't know what spirit you're of. I might agree with you technically, we should be able to stay here. But you know what, we've got other things to do. We need to move on. And when you want to call down fire, yes, I know Elijah did that. And there was a context where that was right. But in this context, guys, listen to me, your spirit's not right. I didn't come here to rain fire on people. Jesus was saying, I came here to save people. So when we are rejected and we go through hard times and oh, woe is me because somebody said something wrong to me or any of these type of things, guess what? God can fix it. God can make it right. 
we don't have to worry about this thing and say, hey, Lord, I don't like the way it felt emotionally. I agree with you. But folks, we have to say, you know what, God? You will make this right. Whatever's true about this situation, you are going to reveal it. You will make it right. And if there is humility wherever it's needed, praise God, then that's where that will be confessed and made right. Those men were right technically, but their spirit was wrong. That's why Jesus rebuked. And by the way, God help us to do that sometimes too. I am nervous. I'll be honest with you. Um, even though I have a lot of experience in churches, the actual title is new to me. I'm, I get a little nervous because of how much the world has crept into the church. The wokeism, the culture. Here's what I feel like sometimes. And, and that's why I get a, a little bit upset. I feel like sometimes instead of just saying something the way it is, as we should as men, and other times we should shut our mouth. Right, Matt? Me? Me. I've done that, okay? Sometimes I've got to shut my mouth. It's not right for me to say something sometimes. But other times, it is right as men to say what you need to say. What I'm afraid of is, if we listen to the world, and we listen to, can I say this without being hurtful, worldly Christians, okay, Christians that are operating in the flesh and their own strength, if we listen to all that, we're going to be as preachers walking on eggshells. Well, I don't want to offend this person. I, I got to be careful what I say here. I, I better not say this. No! We need to preach the word of God. Like I think it was Spurgeon said, let it out like a lion. It has to do all of its work that God intended. All of it. Not holding back, but of course being kind. Of course being tenderhearted. Everything dictates what place you do this at. Every context of life says, be kind, close your mouth. In this case, open your mouth. Our disciple, a son of thunder, <laughs> Lord Jesus, you see what they did to us? Should we ask that fire comes down and burns the city up, burns them up? Do you realize how horrible that is? You know, what these guys, you got to be kidding me, but you know what? I may have not used those same words, but I have felt that way. Lord, did you see how he dishonored me? And, well, and then, of course, we've got to spiritualize it. Well, what's really for the Lord's glory is to say they're really dishonoring God. And sometimes that is the case. But in most cases, it's really just about us, and we get upset. He was a son of thunder. Uh, that was, by the way, found in Mark 3.17. We're not going to turn there right now. But God saw it, okay? Jesus rebuked them for following their own spirit. They were wrong, not just because of what they did, which was actually good. Okay, yeah, there's something wrong here. But because of their spirit, God says, you're still wrong. And it even brought Jesus to the point of rebuking them. So what's the point as we move closer to our text and the title of our message? This same apostle who had a nature like booming thunder, after spending some years with Jesus, after spending some time with God himself, became the disciple of love. You understand? God looked in their nature and said, man, you guys are rough. In fact, you know I love storms. I love the louder the thunder, the cracking of the lightning. I love it when you're in bed and you see that bright light just zap right into your windows because the lightning is really close. And then I love the rumble. It reminds me of the power of God. It reminds me just of power in general. But it is all God's power, his ability to do whatever he speaks and something happens. It just reminds me that I love storms. But this same man that was called Son of Thunder 
The same man that probably was about as gentle as a bull in a china shop, the man that was just, just had that spirit about him, okay, that they just kind of rumbled and they were big, tough, probably big fishermen, now is called the disciple of love. Let me share a few things about this different man now. After spending some time with Jesus, here's just a couple things. He was also called the disciple that Jesus loved. Okay, you can kind of generally say, hey, he's a, he's a disciple of love. But Jesus said, this is the disciple that Jesus, this is one that Jesus loved. Here we go again, favoritism? No. I believe it's because of the way John drew nigh to Jesus. I believe it's because of the way John said, Lord, you can have your way with me. Lord, I, I believe you're God. I, I, I believe that what you say, those are the words of eternal life. Did you say I'm a sinner in that area? I agree with you. See, I, I think that's why he had such a close thing, a, a relationship. Why did he say the disciple that Jesus loved? He said this as John leaned into the breast of our Lord. He chose to put his head there. You need to choose to put your head there. You need to choose to say, I want to get close to Christ. I want to be in that closest area. And by the way, do you know where you, you know when that happened? We see that in the Lord's Supper. His position, John's position at the table during the Last Supper reflected not only honor, but also closeness. John 21 20. Do you want the ultimate truth that speaks of John's character? Who did Jesus say, Mother, behold thy son? Who was that? John. That's right. I can't even imagine for a man, uh, I'm sure there's a couple of them, but one of the greatest things would have to be that Jesus, who is God, said, Hey, here's your son. A stepson, but I want a son, behold your mother. Could, could you imagine? What kind of loving, what kind of character did John have that Jesus would say, Mom, guess what? I'm leaving. I have done the will of the Father. And your heart, it's going to be like a sword came through your soul because I know you love me. And even though I'm God, I'm also your son, your earthly son. And that is going to hurt you probably more than any pain you've ever been through. But I care about you, Mom. And even while I'm on the cross dying, because that's how selfless God is, he was giving his all. He said, Mom, here's your new son. He's going to help take care of you. The disciple of love. Very quickly, what is love? When I was a sophomore in high school, public high school, and we had, uh, let's see, not debate class, but it was just uh, public speaking, that there's a better word for that, but you know what I'm talking about, is in class. And I remember the teacher kind of like quizzing us, and he said, he asked a number of different people, can you define love for me? Now, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I do remember saying something like, well, it's doing nice things for people, and he's like, is that it? Like, like in other words, everybody tried to give an answer of what love is, and everybody had a slightly different answer. It was, it was very interesting. And he was trying to prove a point that every peop all people, different people have different opinions. Even on something as important as that, nobody said the same exact thing. So I decided that I was going to ask Almighty Google, hey, 
What do you think love is, Mr. Google? What, what do you think there? So I asked it. Here's what came up. Intense feelings or affections for someone. Okay? To like or enjoy something very much. You know, like, man, I really love that car. I really love, okay? That's what, that's, these were the first things that came up. Okay? As I kept reading, now again, this is from Google. This is not where we're going to stop. But as I looked at Google, I kept looking at some more, and I'm like, wait a second. It sure captured the emotional component of love, right? Okay? There is an emotional component that's involved in our loving relationships, right? But these, and these feelings that we have that they're describing here, man, I really love this, or, wow, I really love being with this person, or I have this affection, I have these desires, that's not a bad thing, but quite frankly, those feelings, that's what accompanies true love. Okay, those are the effects. You see what I'm saying? And it's funny, the world, once again, they don't have the spirit, they don't have the spiritual, so they focus on the feeling. Right? So I thought, oh man, I got these guys. I got these guys now. I mean, for example, I'm trying to picture, I meet my wife Katie, and no, I'm not bringing you too much into this. I was told that as preachers, you do not bring family members, right? Mrs. Hoover, you're not preaching family members. But this is positive, sweetest, so this is negative, okay? So I totally agree with that. When we were first, um, and I'm going to use the word courting because I believe God brought us together. I'm really, I'll be honest with you, you can define the word any way you want, but I'm really not super big on Christian dating. I'm not. Now, you may call courting dating. you you you, you got to decide that for the Lord what you want to do. But I really believe that the Lord finally, for the first time, said, hey, here's Katie. I met her, and there was such joy. I mean, and there was such um, deep feelings. I couldn't even, I've told you this before, I was twitterpated. I mean, I was running into things and banging my legs and shins, and I, I just, it was very exciting. What I'm trying to say is I couldn't imagine going to Door County with my wife our honeymoon and saying, oh, yeah, we got to go. Okay, get in the car. What's your name? Oh, Katie? Yeah, that's right. Okay. I mean, I can't even imagine doing that. We were so excited. We, we got married. And, you know, I, like I told you many times, I wanted to go to Hawaii, which maybe we'll still do someday, but that's too expensive for us right now. So uh, we decided to go to Door County with all the bed and breakfast. And I can't even imagine how dull... Our honeymoon would have been if I had no affection or no energy. I had no excitement about my wife and about our new relationship. I'm not denying that that isn't part of love. Does it wax and wane? Sure. Sure it does. But if God's in it, it actually grows deeper. It grows more strengthened. It grows more settled. I'm sorry not everybody experiences that. People have free wills in a sense. They have an old nature. And if they don't want to submit to God, it can be very difficult living in a situation with people. And I'm sorry for that, but God has his purposes in that. So, wait a second. Um, you know, wait, what about all these feelings? So I said, okay, now I'm going to do a Greek study. I'm going to look at the word agapao. You've heard that before. Agapao, that's how God loves, that's unconditional love. Let me see what some of the commentators are saying about that. And guess what the first thing it says? Affectionate regard. Wow, Lord, maybe I'm missing it. Now, now the, and again, remember, these are not, this is not the word of God. These are commentaries explaining what the Greek words mean. So it doesn't mean necessarily that the very first thing they chose, that's how God would choose to describe it. They're just men. They're helpful to us, but they're just men. So I said, okay, God, wait a second. I see this affectionate regard. Okay, regard, I'm regarding something. Okay, now you're moving from feeling. Now you're moving to the heart. You're moving to something else here. And as I continued to study, which we should do, I, I started to notice that the study revealed a progression of understanding. This Greek word conveys the idea of God's willful direction to man. So in other words, in the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, like we all do, 
Okay? God used his will, and in his direction, he directed himself towards man. Adam and Eve were guilty because of their sin, and as you remember, they did not want God's presence. Because why? They felt guilty. They had sinned against God. God so loved Adam and Eve and so loved his glory and so loved the plan he had for the whole world, he, using his will, directed his life to interact with Adam and Eve. In other words, he sought them out, even though they were hiding from God. Unconditional love. Our English word charity, as in 1 Corinthians 13, what does that mean? It means love in action. You see where we're going with this? I am thankful that when I love somebody or I'm loved or there's love in a relationship, any relationship, even friendships, I am glad that there is some great affection and feeling that comes with that. And it happens often. But we better have a deeper understanding of love because if you're human, you're not always going to feel that. And I've told you before, I'm glad that we don't live at the honeymoon level in a sense. It's a better level now because it's more strengthened and settled. Still exciting, but I would have died if I had kept that emotional high I was on at our honeymoon. I would die because you, you, we're not made, our systems, our endocrine system cannot handle that much excitement like that. So God is so good to move us forward and wow, it's even better. I love my wife now more than I did 20 some years ago. It's, that's the way it's supposed to work. Charity, love in action. How about John 15, 13? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would do what? lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, I've called you friends, and that's why Jesus did that for us. But do you see the word that's there? We have gone from charity, action, okay? We've also seen John 3.16, we're going to look at, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. Okay, you see, you see, love's got to, there's got to be some action in this love. There's got to be, if you say you love someone, and you don't see any of these things operating, I believe you just love yourself, right? You have love, but you have love for yourself. If I don't see the charity, if I don't see the giving, and how about this word, sacrifice? Folks, that's a lost word. Does anybody ever sacrifice anymore? Does anybody ever say, you know what, that's going to take three pennies out of my pocket, so I guess I'm not going to do it. I don't store those things, you know? Uh, I, you know, pastor asked me to teach this class. Nope, 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 not going to do that. I, I can't take time to do that. Somebody asked me to come to church. No, no, can't do that. I got to watch something. I got to watch sports on Sunday morning. I mean, I don't care whatever excuse it is. Folks, does anybody sacrifice anymore? Amen. Amen. What is love? <laughs> How about this one, last one? Do you remember when Jesus said, if any man hate not? That's strong. If any man hate not his father, his mother, sister, goes through the whole list. Every time, for many years when I looked at that, I'm like, oh Lord, please, I, I really enjoy being with my family. You know, I really love these people. What do you mean? Really simply, it simply means this. You have preference for one over another. All that Jesus was saying was, I want you to love your wife. I want you to love your kids, your family, your friends. I want you to love people in church. I want you to love your strangers, but I even want you to love your enemies. And you can't do that on your own, but you can with my help. 
And what Jesus is saying is, the great love you have for all these people I just mentioned, you need to prefer me even above that. It's preference one over another. Do you prefer Jesus over all those other relationships? Because if you don't, number one, you're either not saved, or if you are saved, praise God, something's wrong with your heart. We need to put Jesus first over ourselves. There is a guy that's quoted numerous times. Eisenhower quoted him. A number of presidents have quoted him. Um, a number of politicians have quoted this gentleman. And I looked it up, and I was disappointed because even though Snopes.com is not perfect because it's run by men, I think they do a pretty good job seeking out what's true and what's not. And I was always excited because numerous times I've heard godly men talk about Alexis D. de Tocqueville. And he wrote a book about democracy. He came in the 1800s, I think it was, and wanted to see America. He wanted to know why America was great, so the saying goes. Turns out the phrase that we've been quoting, if I can believe Snopes, and I've, and I've looked at Bartle, I think it's called Bartleby's or something. There's a couple other ones. I looked at this and I said, oh no, this fit perfectly with my message, but here we go. The guy didn't even really say it. Does that matter? Yes and no. We'll get to that in a moment. But what he said was, this guy, this guy from France comes. He's a politician. Uh, he does a few other things that are on his name plate, name tag. And he comes to America and says, I want to see why America, what's the difference? Why is America great? Is, is it because they have these, uh, these great seaways and these rivers and we have these uh, docks and boats and we have areas for the boats to come in and trade and they seem to have great resources? Why? What's the difference here? What makes them great? Why is that different than any of these other countries? And the saying usually goes, is America is great because America is good. And when America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. Now, that is a wonderful saying, but the best that I can find out, he didn't say it. And yet people quote it. Uh, Newt Gingrich quoted it. I mean, people that I really love and respect. Now, let's stop right here, Okay. Even though that's the case, here's what's more important. That statement is still true. Jesus said, righteousness exalteth the nation. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We have so many principles in the Bible that still back that up. Now, I appreciate doing all the deep, hard work and saying, that guy didn't really appear to say that. Though here's what's interesting. According to my studies, two Presbyterian uh, preachers came over uh, from England or uh, somewhere overseas and looked around and they basically said the same thing. Hey, America's great. And they talked about greatness and goodness. So maybe that's where it originally came from. It didn't come from de Tocqueville because they can't find that phrase anywhere in his sayings. But what I want to say is, folks, this is how the Lord works. Somebody who's an intellect does all of this great hard work and says, hey, I found out this is just not exactly right. Good for you. We want to be accurate in what we want to say. We want to quote people accurately. But what the devil does, just like he did in the garden, is he says, Yea, hath God said? Casting doubt. Oh, you mean that guy kind of made that up a little bit, or that guy didn't say it quite right? Ha ha! Now I'm never going to listen to the guy. He's a fake. He's a phony. He doesn't have integrity. No. We should be accurate with what we say. But folks, don't let the truth, especially when you can back it up in the Word of God, don't let the truth be thrown away. That's what the devil wanted. When the devil said to Adam and Eve, yay, are you sure? Is that really what God said? He was casting this doubt in their minds and it was causing their mind to get super analytical. Analysis paralysis. 
all these things. Oh, I gotta just, I gotta figure out. Every, I have to sift and go through every little point. I gotta figure out. Wait, I gotta, I gotta make sure, folks. Don't miss the big picture. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Even though De Tocqueville didn't say it, what makes America great is because it was good. And what made America good is because we do or used to have people in the pulpits that would preach righteousness. They would preach the word of God. They would do these things. And guess what? The only reason we and all of us can do these things is because the only one who's truly good is Jesus Christ. Jesus is good. Let's take that one step further. Well, then if Jesus is loving, what did Jesus do to prove that he's good? He sacrificed his life. He hung on the cross. He literally died and rose again the third day for us. Jesus is good. And when America kicks Jesus out and we stop having good men in churches and good men in our families and good men in our businesses... That's what we're going to get. We are going to be destroyed. It's happening right now. Right now before our eyes. So I still like Alexis de Tocqueville. But I don't think he's the guy. <laughs> I don't think he's the guy that said that. Doesn't matter. The truth is wonderful. What is love? I just put it in my own words. Your willingness to not only give up your wants and desires, but to even give up a need that you have for somebody else. You think God needed Jesus to die on that cross? Yeah, for us he did, but for, I'm talking about from God's perspective. Do you think a good heavenly father said, you know what, I'm just going to send Jesus down there because he has nothing else to do, so he might as well go to those people, he might as well just die, he might as well die on the cross, he might as well fight Satan, you know, and he might as well pray in the garden and I'm not going to answer because I've got a different plan. No, Jesus and God showed their love for us in that they didn't need that. We needed that. And God, I believe, suffered more than any, and I can't call him a creature because he's the creator, but any being that has a soul and a spirit and a will and emotions and has all these things, nobody suffered like the Heavenly Father when he saw his son being spit upon, spit upon and his beard being plucked out and bleeding and you could see his organs pumping in his back because they with the cat of nine tails ripped the skin off of him and then dying on that cross for us, paying the penalty that we could never pay. Folks, that's love. Willingness to give, willingness to sacrifice. Ah, you finally ready for our title? Yep, I went backwards and that's my prerogative. God is good. It's evidenced by what he gave. It's evidenced by what he sacrificed. God is the truly only good one. But now here's our title. And by the way, I added one word. I borrowed it from Warren Wearsby. And I'm sure it's not original with him. I like to give credit where I need to give credit. But if a preacher gave credit to absolutely every truth he ever heard, we'd never get... I mean, We'd be here for a week and we wouldn't even be through the introduction. There's a balance. I am a product of my teachers like you are. We hear great things. I probably have repeated some things Pastor Hoover has said. My wife has even said that she learned from school. Things I've said. We don't, we don't have to like do that, but I'm just being honest with you. I borrowed this title because it's a good one. And here's our point. The love, and we talked about love quite a long time, didn't we? Listen to this. The love that God hates. The love that God hates. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, 
verses 15 through 17. I am also turning there electronically, and so far my Kindle has not let me down, but I am waiting for the day when this thing, the battery, will just go bad, and I won't be able to pull things up, and I'll have a Bible ready to go. But 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If we know that God was able to take a guy like John, a son of thunder, and make him a disciple of love, he can do that with us too. And now John, through the Holy Spirit leading him, has challenged us with a couple verses, which is I would like to leave you with this morning, some of these verses. It says, and the theme is love not the world. I think we've got a good handle of what love is now, right? But he says love, not the world. Look, let's read these verses together. Verse 15 of 1 John chapter 2, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Is love and hate compatible? I think it is. This boy went off to a hospital and he was going uh, with his school. He was going on a school trip. And when they asked some of the kids what did they notice mostly about the hospital, the one boy said, I noticed that the doctors and nurses, they wash their hands a lot. You know, that, that's a pretty good idea, right? Uh, we don't want those guys, I mean, I like when my dentist would wash his hands. I really don't want the dentist sticking, you know, his hands in my mouth and things and, and a doctor's. Um, heard some horrible stories my wife shared about, uh, well, be careful, I guess, because you might have to go to that hospital, so you can talk to me later. Um, we want things to be clean. We want things to be disinfected. We, uh, when you open up the body, you are opening up your body to a world of infection, and it's just got to be a clean environment. It's just, just got to have clean hands and all these things. But is love and hate compatible? This boy said, you know, I noticed that they wash their hands a lot. And, and he was talking to one of the doctors, and the doctor said, the reason why I do that is because I hate germs. Why does a doctor hate germs? Because the germs will hurt the one he's working on, the one that he's operating on, the one that he's even just maybe given a general physical it is okay to love and hate. I am very comfortable with the fact that because I love my wife, I will hate anything that will hurt her. Amen. Have I always been, have I been the one that actually hurt her sometimes? I'm embarrassed to say yes. I wish every marriage was perfect. I wish, I wish a man and a woman, when they got married, were always perfectly towards one another, but I'm sorry that's not the case. So I'm ashamed to say that sometimes I have been the one that was doing the hurting. But what I'm speaking of maybe more specifically is physically and a number of other ways. It is compatible for me to say, I love my wife so much, I hate the things that will hurt her. There was a young man in a Bible college. He was one of those stellar students. He was one of those guys that everybody noticed in the college. He, uh, the co he worked for the college president. He was a great servant. He got good grades. He did whatever basically was needed. He was there all the time. Well, as time went on, the people in the college, his church, his family, and the president noticed that he seemed to be different all of a sudden. He wasn't coming around as much. His attitude just really wasn't there. He didn't seem like he was excelling in his grades. He wasn't showing up for some of the ministry opportunities. You could tell big change in his life. 
The president, caring about this young man, invited him into his office. So the young man comes in, and they start discussing, hey, I'll just call his name Bob, okay? Bob, I noticed, um, is there something wrong? Are you struggling with something? Because your life has majorly changed. You, you were involved in all these things. You were having victory. You were working hard in this area and that area. And I got to say, something has really cavitated in your life. Something has really changed. The boy said this. He said, you know, I wanted to get married, which is not a bad desire. And he says, I, I met this girl. She's a godly girl. Uh, she's a church-going girl. Um, I just was so excited because I so, I so wanted to do this. I thought we could um, you know, serve the Lord together. I thought that we could study the Bible, pray together, be together all the time and be a ministry team. Here's what he admitted. And let me add an addendum before we say, oh, Larry, what are you saying? This young man admitted that when he pursued this girl and had all these grandiose ideas, he had to admit this. He said, you know... I stopped looking for the return of the Lord. I, I stopped desiring to seek God. I, um, I mean, I love her. She's a great girl. It doesn't seem like the Bible says anything bad against marrying someone who's good. Why not? But what he had to admit was he stopped seeking the Lord with his whole heart. Somebody else had got into his heart and took the place of Christ. You understand? Now, I've told my kids numerous times, I've had the same feelings. Oh, Lord, uh, before I get married, could you please not come back? I mean, we, we, we probably done it. And I've never really said the words exactly like that. But in my heart, here's what I said. Boy, I sure hope I can experience that before the second coming. And in our case, it would be the rapture first, right? I, we've had desires like that. Don't beat yourself up for having desires. But here's the difference. If that desire carries you to where now you're willing to sacrifice your relationship with Christ so that you can fulfill some fleshly desire, that is worldly. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Folks, listen. Worldliness is more of a heart attitude than it is your action. It will produce worldly actions. But if we don't start understanding that worldliness, that is that system. For example, have you ever heard the phrase wide world of sports? What does it mean, wide world of sports? Well, it means everything that encompasses the sport. It means the TV, the radio, the players, the owners. It means uh, the arenas where they play. It's the whole thing. And in that connection is a spirit about that whole thing. There is a spirit at work in our world right now that is constantly working against the Christian. It is it's a, yeah, That's right, ma'am, it is. It's a satanic spirit, and it wants you to say, you know what, thanks for saving me, God, but I still want to do what I want to do. I kind of want to have both. I know I have my foot in heaven. I know that I'm going to go there someday. I know you want to bless my life, and I've actually even done things for you, but you know what, right now, this is more important to me. There is a spirit, there, there is three types of worlds actually in the scripture. There is creation, which is beautiful. We've all been on traps. I think Pastor and Mrs. Hoover, when I talked with them, they were leaving St. Thomas. They were by the islands, these beautiful, uh, would you call that, is that Jamaica? I'm not sure if that's where they exactly, I don't even know. 
until he, okay, very good. You know, your, you know your islands. That's some of the most beautiful beaches and some of those beautiful areas to go. That is a wonderful design of God for you to enjoy. And by the way, you know why God makes the world so beautiful? You're supposed to think about God when you see these things because you see the Creator's hand. Okay? That's, that's part, that's beautiful. How about this? Mankind. We also see that when the Bible says, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Okay, he died for mankind. For God so loved the world. What does that mean? Does he love his creation? Well, yeah, I think he really gets pleasure out of what he creates, but more so, he loves people. For God so loved the world, that's creation. But the worst aspect of world, when John, who now is the disciple of love, and God is loving us through John and saying, hey, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, He's talking about secularism. He's talking about living your life where you don't need God and yet you're going to try to satisfy all your desires anyways, all your lusts, everything. Watch any half-hour TV show. You might even think it's a good one. And I'm not telling you to go out and watch a bunch of TV now. What I am saying is most of us in this room have probably seen a half-hour uh, sitcom or you know, situational comedy or, or not even a comedy. could be just drama. How many times can you tell me that in that drama, even some of the ones I like, they seem to solve all their problems without going to Jesus. They seem to solve all their problems without prayer, without the word of God. They don't have a pastor in their life. They don't have a church. They don't study the Bible. That's secular. I've seen that stuff. I've watched it. That is not life. These people are worldly I am amazed sometimes. I come across, and I don't mean this as judgmental. I mean this as simply what the Word of God says. I am amazed sometimes when I come across young people and they don't understand that you need to be married. You, you don't live together, okay? But, but almost every show that's on TV, these people are living together. They're living like they're married and they're acting like they're married. That is an offense to God. I'm not making that up. It's right in the Scriptures. We need to follow God's order. And then it will work the way it's supposed to work. God loves marriage. God loves people. And if it's right for you, it will be a huge blessing. But let me tell you, if it is not God's will and you try to make something happen, you will be miserable. God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to be miserable. He wants you to have joy and peace. I don't blame that college student for wanting to be married. That's a right desire. I don't even blame him for struggling. But you know what? I believe the Holy Spirit was probably putting his finger on that young man's heart and saying, this is not my choice for you. Listen to me. This is not my choice for you. God did that in my life. He'll do that in your life if you'll listen. This is not God's choice for you. And people still have gone and said, you know what, Lord? I hear you, but I'm, I, I just, I gotta have this. I, I gotta have it. And God allows them to get it. And they suffer deep, deep regrets. Romans 12, 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. You know what conforming does? It's that heavy pressure. The world is constantly pressuring you and me to follow them, not to follow Jesus. And believe me, I know how hard it is sometimes. I, hey, we understand it is not easy every single day to get up and say, hey, Lord, what would you have me to do? I'm here for you. Let's do this. There are times that we just don't feel like doing it. 
but we must. We must choose Christ. We must choose to do right. And the feelings will follow after that. We must, by faith, say, God, I'm not feeling it. I need you to get me going here again. And he will do it. Do you realize that once you get saved, you are no longer designed for this world? Before I got saved, I fit in really well with my friends at public school, my neighbors. I fit in really well with my unsaved relatives and, okay, and family members. Because I was doing just what they were doing. I was listening to the same music. I was watching the same things. I was reading similar magazines. I was talking with a potty mouth. Okay, I was talking and using words that I heard adults use, so it felt cool to me to do that, so I would do it. See, I was, before I was saved, that was my world. But once you get saved, I want you to think about this. Anyone ever go scuba diving here? Yeah, oh, excellent. Anybody else? A couple people? Um, the only thing I've done is put a snorkel in my mouth, and I've told you about that. It was very difficult for me to want to breathe underwater because that's not normal, even with the snorkel in my mouth. But people that go scuba diving, for example, the only way they can stay under that water for so long is because they are equipped with a whole system of air. They usually have a wetsuit on, snor- all these different things. That's the only way that they can make it. If you're an astronaut, the same thing, right? You have to have a spacesuit. You have to have a capsule. You were not designed to be in space. You were designed to be on this wonderful earth. Air, breathing our air. And if you're a fish, you're designed for the water. We're not fish. And when we get saved, we are not designed for this world any longer. We are designed for the next one. And God gives us his spirit to live it properly down here. We can have the scuba gear on. We can have the astronaut suit on. We can have the capsule. That's what we need, Ephesians 6, the whole armor of God. We need to put all those things on while we're down here. Then we can make it. And here's the ending. And So what do you get when you submit to God in these verses? What do you get? When you, when you say, God, I want to obey you, um, I don't want to love the world, that's the world system, the satanic system. I don't want to love that that tells me to put me first. I don't want to do that, God. Uh, I don't want to even love the things. There's so much materialism in this country. There's so many fun things, and I believe God gives us richly all things to enjoy, but the difference becomes when these things become so paramount in our life, I have to have it. I don't even care sometimes about spiritual things. That is an idol, Okay. But when I say, Lord, I thank you for the things I have, but I'm going to use them for your glory, use them for my needs. I'm going to even enjoy them. See, that's okay when the Spirit's in control of them. Love not the world, neither the things of the world. When you submit to God and say, I want to live these verses, God. I want to live them. I don't want the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, of flesh, and pride of life. I want to be the one that abides with you forever. I want to do the will of God. When you do that, you get an almighty Father. I'm ending on this verse. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians 6, and we are done. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want you to see. Oh, why would I give up all this stuff? Why, why, why should I do this? And I'm still working to get there because I thought I saved it and I didn't. I apologize. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17 Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. I believe the Lord's a separatist. 
It's something we need to study and preach and teach her too. We, we, I, I believe the Lord's a separatist in a good way. Not a holier than thou, but he says, come out and be separate, say the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord God, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Folks, what do you get when you submit to God? You get God. You get an almighty father. Which if, you, which if you don't know him that well, that's why he's not that great to you. But when you get to know this almighty father, you understand, wow, I'm getting the whole thing. I'm getting heaven. I'm getting eternal life. I'm getting this relationship with this one who designed me and knows me better than I know myself. When we submit and say, I don't want the world. I want to live for the kingdom. I want to live for God's kingdom. Now you get God. Folks, is that not enough for you? Is that not enough? It isn't enough if you don't know him. Is Miss, uh, you could just play one quick little verse just as I am. Listen to what I'm saying this morning. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you have not experienced that, the love of the Father. Okay, yet you don't understand that. You can come this morning and be saved. You can come and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned against you. I know I've broken at least one of your laws, but I believe you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Lord, please save me. And when you mean that from the heart and do that, he will come and take his abode and live within you, and he will give you his presence. He will forgive your sins. He, if you ask him, he will give you power and victory in your life. And I'm telling you, the relationship is better than anything this world has to offer. If you're a Christian and you've been loving the world, and you've been loving the things of the world, I want you to come forward too and just pray. If you settle it there, great. But some people really have a blessing. They find that there is a blessing in coming forward. Please settle that.